Please be seated. Good afternoon, Your Honor. Whitney Folkeberg from Kirkland & Ellis on behalf of the debtors. As an initial matter, I just wanted to thank you very much for entering our first day orders yesterday and today, and also thank the Office of the United States Trustee and Council to the UCC who's in the courtroom today for working with us over the past couple of weeks to incorporate edits into those orders before submitting them to you. While we're all here, I thought it might be helpful to provide the court with a brief update regarding the debtor's marketing process and various discussions with uh, other case stakeholders since the first day hearing. With respect to the marketing process, the debtor's investment banker Houlihan has continued to reach out to potential sale parties, including parties that were contacted in connection with the pre-petition marketing process. Since the petition date, we've had several parties indicate interest uh, in submitting bids by the bid deadline, and the debtors are working with those parties to provide them with the diligence and information they need to move forward and submit those bids um, in advance of the bid deadline. Given the complexity of the debtor's business, certain of the debtors that we've been in contact with have expressed the need for additional time to complete their analysis before submitting bids. For that reason, as you may have seen in the revised bidding procedures order that we filed this morning at docket number 236, uh, we have worked with the lenders, the UCC, the United States trustee to extend out some of those sale deadlines to allow the bidders to complete their diligence process. The revised dates include November 21st as the date to designate a potential stocking horse bidder, November 28th as the revised bid deadline, an auction scheduled for December 4th, and a sale hearing um, scheduled on December 8th. These changes simply move the sale hearing out a date by only, or sorry, out by only two days, but allow the debtors and the bidders to really take advantage of the time in between um, now and that sale hearing so we can complete the diligence process and make sure that the bidders have all the information that they need. Um, we have believe the bidders indicated that that's sufficient time for them to be able to complete their diligence and put in a bid? At this time, yes. Um, a, a lot of them, you know, the bid, previous bid deadline was prior to the Thanksgiving holiday. We've heard from bidders that they're will, will, willing to work through the Thanksgiving holiday, but they just couldn't get it in before, before yeah, the holiday. Lucky, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. They'll love them, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Um, so we do, we believe that these dates will allow for a robust marketing process and will give bidders the time that they need um, to, re to submit bids. With respect to stakeholder engagement, we have been working with the advisors to the UCC since their engagement a few weeks ago and have been providing responses to diligence and document requests that we've received. To that end, the debtors, the lenders, and the UCC determined that it made the most sense and was for the best interest of all parties to move forward today with a second interim cash collateral order rather than a final cash collateral order. That will give the UCC time to complete their lien review work and it'll also provide time for the debtors to give the UCC some information that they requested regarding um, liquidity past the 
December, I'm forgetting now, but whatever the date that our current budget goes through to make sure that there is liquidity past that point, which the debtors are working on right now, and we plan to exchange that information um, later today. Um, the second interim order is effective for approximately two weeks, and the parties have arranged with the court for a final cash collateral hearing scheduled on November 29th. Finally, the debtors are hard at work on refining a plan and disclosure statement, which I know we discussed at the first day hearing. We intend to file that in the new near term, and that will provide for um, a toggle structure with the sale process as well as um, an equitization backstop if that sale process is ultimately not successful. Um, unless Your Honor has any questions with respect to those matters, I can, I can move on to the agenda today or open it up for anybody else who'd like to make an opening statement. How does that timeline um, on a toggle plan mesh with the timeline for the sale process as it currently exists? So the plan is to get the plan and disclosure statement on file as soon as possible so we can start the clock. We will know prior to a disclosure statement hearing whether, I think, if I'm doing the math correctly, whether the sale process has you know, come to fruition and we have a, a viable third-party bidder. And if not, we already will have the plan on file that provides for the equitization toggle so we can move forward with that um, part of the plan. Okay. Okay, so the first item for today is agenda item number 12, which is the second interim cash collateral order filed at docket number 237. I also have a copy of the revised order and red line to the first interim order if that's helpful for you. I'm looking at the second interim order that was filed November 15. Is there something since then? Nope, that's exactly okay. right. So as I mentioned just now, the parties determined it was best to move forward with the second interim rather than the final order. And the second interim preserves the various issues that the UCC wanted to preserve while they're you know, reviewing or conducting their lien review. Um, the filed order incorporates comments from the UCC, the lenders, United States trustee, as well as a reservation of rights language that was requested by an ad hoc group of lenders and a separate reservation of rights language requested by Chubb. And I'm happy to address any questions you have on the second, second interim order or walk through the changes that have been made from the first interim. I have a couple of questions. I actually don't remember the Chubb language, um, so you can point that out to me. They seem to be taking a very active role in the case. <laughs> um, the Chubb language is at paragraph 23. If you're looking at the red line, it is page 52. At the, yes, the end of paragraph 23. Oh, okay. 
hand, it strikes me as an issue. So okay. I didn't remember that. Okay. okay. Um, I see on page, and I am looking at the red line, um, page 11, there's a new defined term, committee's challenge. Comes up a couple of places, and each time it comes up, it says is defined here in, but I see no definition. Okay. And I just want to at least understand what it's supposed to mean. are correct. It is not defined. Feel free to come up. Hello, Your Honor. Andrew Zass from White Case on behalf of Bank as the bridge agent. The term committee is defined and the term challenge is defined. It looks like a new term when they're next to each other, but they're each independently defined. Okay, so then my question is, is does the fact that it says, for example, in this paragraph um, L on page 11, that no liability to third parties um, that that cuts off anybody else's challenge? Because the challenge period, as would be in the general challenge provision of a dip order, uh, is a 75-day period in which any party in interest can bring a challenge. So is this cutting off other parties in interest right to bring a challenge? That is certainly not the intention. <laughs> if you if you look to paragraph seven, which this cross references, it's really a all encompassing provision that supersedes the rest of the order and gives all parties challenge rights as are set forth in that paragraph. I think the reason it reads the way it does now is because this was prophylactic language that the committee requested, um, and we just accepted their language as proposed. They were looking out for their own challenge rights, but all challenge rights are preserved as set forth in paragraph seven. Okay, thank you. I have a question on the credit bid language in paragraph 20 and the new paragraph 20, um, so on page 49 and 50. And in particular, um, paragraph C, because again, I'm not going to read the language as limiting challenge rights to just the committee. But in paragraph C, I'd like to understand how this works given the timeline that we have. So the challenge period is 75 days. 
and paragraph C is addressing um, if the credit bids are subject to a successful challenge. And it gives the pre-petition secured parties options, which are to exclude certain assets that successfully challenged assets, I guess, from the credit bid or withdraw their credit bid. How does that work with the timeline of the challenge extending beyond the credit bid period? So they will have their time to, you know, undertake their challenge period. And if, in fact, I mean, I guess we'll have to figure out in advance of the final order um, the, how to fix that language because the auction will be taking place, you know, the way that the timeline is, is built out about six or seven days after, you know, hopefully getting entry of the final order. So at that time we would, you know, have this piece resolved regarding um, the credit bid and the challenge and how the challenge period interplays with their credit bid. Well, I guess my a better question would be what happens on December 4 at the auction when the challenge period hasn't expired? I might be able to help, although I haven't identified myself Mr. yet. Mr. Siegel. How are you? Um, I'm Glenn Siegel. I'm here on behalf of MetLife. We're actually the single largest creditor in this case. Um, what I would expect would happen in these circumstances is the challenge period would end after the auction but before the closing. And we would have a backup bidder locked up in sufficient time to make a decision within all of these things and we could pivot to whatever was necessary as a result of the conclusion of the challenge. Does that make sense? I guess it could. I guess the question is do, do, do all the bidders understand that their bid could be out there for a substantial period of time. Well, more than one would expect usually. W it is important to us to close quickly. So if there is a challenge, it will be resolved one way or another, including, you know, we can pay cash, we can exclude the assets. There are ways to do this. But how do you exclude the action? The, the assets all after you've already had the auction, do you then have to reopen the auction? Because now you're, you're excluding assets. Well, we have a plan that will equitize these things if need be, and we will have treatment under the plan for the unsecured creditors, and they will have, we will have to meet the plan standards at that point. Does this make the auction illusory? I, I don't think so. I think I understand Romanet one, which is that if there's a successful challenge and it's after the auction has taken place and the um, pre-petition lenders have credit bid, they pay cash. That's easy. That's an easy fix. Everybody at the auction understands that. The auction isn't illusory. The pre-petition lenders cough up the money. But two and three. Okay, so I'm having trouble understanding how that works with closing the auction and coming up with a high bidder. 
let, let's talk about a couple of different scenarios, okay? We could have a whole co-bid, okay? That is somebody's buying the entire business. Mm -hmm. If that is not a credit bid, this problem doesn't exist because then we can just deal with the proceeds. Mm -hmm. If the whole co-bid is a bid of the lenders acting collectively, we will either have to pay cash or we will have to determine that those assets will not come with us in a um, – just to help a little bit because the plan's not on file. Uh, we want to give you a little bit of help and how we would contemplate to effectuate this. So maybe that will be helpful. Um, if we are the successful credit bidder, the lenders collectively, we will wind up taking the equity of the entities. That's what we will do. If we intend to take the equity of the entities and there is an asset in which we do not have a security interest because of this, we will either have to compensate the unsecured creditors for that under the plan or we will not be able to confirm a plan. And we have not yet completed our negotiations over how we're going to treat the GUPs. And this is, by the way, an OPCO issue as a general matter, but that's what we will have to do, and that will – be part of the negotiation that we ultimately have over the treatment of the GUCs, which will be which will vary depending upon whether they have a successful um, challenge or not. Um, and or if it becomes too complicated and we have a backup bidder, we can just go to the backup bidder. Now, when you say lock up the backup bidder, we're not talking we're not talking about going on for a year. We're talking about you know maybe a month. I don't know how quickly can you get a plan confirmed. We think we, on file. we think we have the votes right now, honestly. So I don't have anything on file. No, I know I'm you just, don't. I'm just trying to play this out. Your, Your Honor, you are absolutely right that we will have to go through due process and have a full-blown plan process, and we completely accept that. We do have a level of confidence, given the number of creditors that have been involved in this process, that – to the extent to which there are non-consenting creditors, we have a view about how to deal with them. Unfortunately, we're talking about a plan that's not on file, which makes it a little bit difficult. But, I, you know, I think the best answer I have for this is if we're not able to do these three things, ultimately we're going to have to pay cash or this whole thing's going to fall apart. I understand that, I guess. But and to me, that's a perfectly acceptable, we just pay cash, okay? But these other options, I, I'm just trying to think if I'm a, another bidder, okay, what am I bidding against? A credit bid that maybe turns into cash, that's easy. Um, if I'm going to now, some, some more assets come available, I'm not sure what that means, and you, – you, Your Honor, maybe this is helpful because I think the economics here are such that it doesn't – the imperative doesn't become quite as – it's not as dire as it may seem. Remember that there is a huge – there is likely to be a deficiency claim on the OPCO side, which means the amount of cash that we would have to pay – that are not lender cash is likely to be not substantial. So we think we can work it out. That's what it comes right down to. So what does that mean for purposes of paragraph C? 
All right, you know what? Why don't we take a moment and talk amongst ourselves? Okay, seats. and y'all can do that. And um, be easier if I left. <laughs> let, me, let me warn you that I do have a few questions on the auction procedure, so you may want to hear those too. Come, Your Honor, this is Whitney Fulford um, on behalf of the debtors. We can come back to this one while people continue to discuss, and maybe we'll either have a solution or maybe we can figure it out in connection with the, the auction procedures, too. Okay. That sounds good. Those um, were the questions I had in reading the red line. Okay. 
Um, and uh, I don't know if there's anyone else who wants to be heard on the revised form or has any different questions, but those are, that's the extent of my questions. Yes. Good afternoon, Your Honor. Uh, Alex Lees of Milbank for an ad hoc group of OPCO lenders. Um, we filed a 2019 statement at docket number 241. Uh, our issue is not one with the relief that's specifically being requested today, but with an issue that might come up down the road. We want to make very clear that our decision not to object to cash collateral at this stage should not be interpreted as a consent to that issue down the road, and it's this. We've got two silos here, two entities that are legally distinct that have different capital structures and different loans, the OPCO and the PROPCO. My clients are exclusively lenders at the OPCO entity. And we are here on a cash collateral motion where funding would be used to accomplish a sale. That is fine. What is not fine is that another group of lenders has agreed among themselves to an allocation of net proceeds of any sale that might result. And that is an allocation with which we take issue. We think it skews value far too heavily in favor of PropCo and away from the OPCO lenders. Uh, I think this is an issue that could come up maybe at confirmation, um, but, and, and at that time, I think we will take issue with it. We may have a valuation fight, objections along those lines. But I just want to make very clear that in saying it's okay to use cash collateral, we're not objecting to the use of cash collateral to accomplish the sale. We're not agreeing to the pre-cooked allocation that has just been agreed among some lenders. I think the debtors have made very clear, they, they submitted a reply to our statement making this point. They made very clear rightly that the, the debtors have not yet signed on to this allocation. The debtors have not yet put this allocation before the court, rightly so. But should they do that? Should it show up in a plan, for example, or in some proposed order that's when we are going to take issue. I also expect that in light of this issue lurking in the background, some discovery may be needed. So I think shortly we will be reaching out to the debtors to start negotiating that. And if we need to, we might wind up with a Rule 2004 examination. Um, so I just wanted to make that very clear to the court what it is we are agreeing to and not agreeing to today. Um, so it's not for now, but it very well could come up in the future. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Your Honor. Well, it's hard to take umbrage to something that isn't an objection, but somebody kind of staking out territory, I gather. People do that all the time. I know. So now it's my turn. Every day. So now it's my turn. So what can I tell you? The, 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 the first point is I'll, re, I'll make the point that I made earlier, which is MetLife is the single largest creditor in this case. What, what this court may not know is we're actually slightly skewed towards the OPCO side. Our exposure is a little large, larger on the OPCO side than it is on the PropCo side. We negotiated very heavily with the uh, various constituencies. The farm banks are more um, skewed on the PropCo side. Uh, Rabo, I'm, I'm talking about who the signatories to the agreement are. Rabo and RBC are skewed towards the OPCO side. And at the end of the day, what we all wanted to do was to make sure there was a maximization of value with a reasonable allocation of value. And we agreed to this process, and 
again, we don't have a plan. We don't have anything in front of uh, you, Your Honor, and I apologize for having conversations about something that not, that's not before you, but people want to talk about this stuff. I want to at least give you the background. We are very confident, first of all, that the allocation is fair. We're also very confident that the, under the plan that the classes that are affected by this will be voting in favor of the plan and in, in, uh, under the terms of the agreement that we reached and that to the extent to which parties want to contest that, we're very comfortable the plan will be confirmed. We can deal with that at another point in time. But we are very confident we've reached an equitable arrangement between the parties that reflects a reasonable allocation of value. And whether or not that's true will be determined by a number of things, but I want to make sure that it's clear that um, a class vote actually matters here too. So that, that, that's the point. Okay, thank you. I'll deal with that issue as it arises in the course of these cases in whatever place it happens. I um, simply say, of course, that the court hasn't approved any allocation. The lender support agreement I saw referenced, so I went back and looked at it. It was filed uh, in the case, but uh, it's not in front of me, and I make no um, decisions on it. Nor Nothing I'm entering today impacts that. And, and everyone has reserved all rights, and I do want to mention that we don't necessarily even concede they have standing to object to this. For another point in time, we can deal with all of this. Again, I apologize for us talking to you about something that's not filed and not before you. Okay, thank you. Winnie Folgeberg on behalf of the debtors again. Then next item on the agenda is item number 13, which is the bidding procedures order um, that was filed at docket number 236 today. Um, there was a, a red line attached as well as a cumulative red line or a change page from what was filed yesterday on the 14th. Okay, so what I am working on is what was filed yesterday. I understand there are only these three pages in the order that were different. That's exactly right, Your Honor. Okay. Um, so in connection with the bidding procedures motion, the debtor submitted a declaration at docket number 136 and the declarant Mr. Sandall from Houlihan is in the courtroom today. I request that Mr. Sandall's declaration be entered into evidence at this time. Does anyone object? Does anyone wish to cross-examine Mr. Sandall? Well, I hear no one. The declaration is admitted. Thank you, Your Honor. The proposed bidding procedures will enable the debtors to expeditiously sell their assets on a timeline that's supported by their current liquidity forecasts. And the revised deadlines that we discussed earlier will allow bidders additional time to complete the diligence process and submit bids by the um, a new bid deadline. If you have any questions or comments, which I believe you do, <laughs> regarding the bidding procedures order or the procedures themselves, my colleague, Mr. Gremling, is going to step up to the podium and can address those. I have actually one question on Mr. Sandall's declaration. Um, 
one second while I get a copy of that. Dave Gremlin, Kirkland and Ellis on behalf of the debtors. In paragraph 15, Mr. Sandall refers to the lender support agreement um, and the requirement to conduct the sale as soon as possible. But then he, in the last sentence, he says, the debtor's path to a viable sale is more streamlined by the agreement of the LSA parties to support a whole of company sale. I don't understand what that means. And does that have anything to do with the timeline? And if you need to ask him, you can ask him. <laughs> so I think what he means is that the, um, the LSA, a partially redacted version of which I think was filed on the docket with uh, the first day declaration, um, provides for an agreement among the parties thereto for a whole company sale um, at a, I believe, a specified dollar threshold. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't preclude bidders who may be interested in just buying a parcel of land or certain operational assets from participating in the process as well in the event that that would be value maximizing. Does that answer your question? If that's what it means. <laughs> Mr. Sandall didn't disagree with me, <laughs> um, but he did provide some additional context, which is that it's a, a useful signal to potentially interested buyers to let them know that they don't need to negotiate with the OPCO or the PROPCO or their you know discrete uh, lender silos separately, and that they're dealing with one sort of unified enterprise uh, for purposes of this sale process. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. He said I was right, though. <laughs> Just to clarify. All right, okay. Okay. Um, um, and I know you said you're working off yesterday's red line. The changes in the change paper red line that Ms. Vogelberg referred to are pretty minor, but I have a copy of the comprehensive and that change paper red line with me here in case that's helpful. Yeah, no. Actually, a, a cumulative wasn't helpful because I'd already read the <laughs> one from yesterday. Understood. So, um, and yes, I think the changes to the, the three pages of the order um, I don't have any problems with or questions about. Um, first, in paragraph F, um, of the order, and this is a change to the order, not a question. I'm not going to incorporate Mr. Sandal's declaration into my order, so that reference has to come out. 
Okay. Um, talk about consultation parties and how that's going to work here. And the way I understand it, the pre-petition lenders, uh, specifically the lenders that are, um, I guess, signatories to the lender support agreement and are going to be, well, I guess it's all a credit bidding, um, want to be consultation parties. That's correct. And the question I have here is, why should they be consultation parties when they set the floor for the price? They're already participating. Um, or at the very least, why shouldn't they have to tell people, why shouldn't there be a date by which they have to tell people they're credit bidding or they're not credit bidding? So I have two thoughts, and I suspect that counsel to certain of the pre-petition secured parties might have thoughts of their own. Um, but on the former, while I acknowledge that they are effectively participating in the sale process by virtue of their ability to bid on the company's assets, we think it is appropriate generally to include as consultation parties the economic stakeholders in a Chapter 11 case like this who are likely to be the party that benefits from additional sale proceeds that come into the process. We think that they are the stakeholder who will be most affected by our sale process, um, just in terms of maximizing their recovery. We think that value is unlikely to break in the unsecured debt, and so we think that um, they're the real uh, interested stakeholder here in terms of how the process shakes out. And then I would also point out that our process, our procedures provide, and I can find the reference if that's helpful, that they're disqualified as a consultation party to the extent that they do submit a bid other than a credit bid. And then on the timing that Your Honor asked, um, I appreciate that parties in the process may want um, a, an amount of finality that comes with a credit, credit bid deadline, but we think practically, the, um, as evidenced by the LSA, the uh, parties have been negotiating among themselves and have landed on numbers that they believe are appropriate for dividing up sale proceeds. So I think as a practical matter, at the conclusion of any auction, um, there will be a number on the table that they will have decided, um, you know, a reservation price as to whether, as to where, what they would accept or not. And when the auction ends, there will be another number on the table that are either be at, above, or lower than that reservation price. So while I acknowledge that um, setting aside the challenge period issue that Your Honor has raised, um, that there isn't an official backstop. I think practically they'd be able to determine whether or not they want a credit bid almost immediately upon the conclusion of an auction. Okay, so I'm thinking about this from the standpoint not of the lenders who have agreed already to what they're willing to take and have set the floor, but other bidders who want to come in and don't want one bidder to have an advantage over another bidder. And how is being a consultation party not an advantage over every other bidder. Your Honor, Andrew Zatz again from Wait in Case on behalf of Bank. 
But I do think this issue about the consultation parties is a little bit of a matter of semantics because the reality is the lenders collectively do have that power by virtue of having their secured claims, which could be credited. And we've set a floor that's well south of the full amount of the debt. Under the lender support agreement, which was signed by the required lenders under each of the three facilities, the Bridge facility, the Opco facility, and the Propco facility, there is a range, effectively. Parties need to hit the minimum of $275 million to be in the game, and there is a level which, if bidding gets up to a certain point, the lenders will not credit bid any further. Do we know what that is? We're not making that number publicly available because that would taint the process otherwise. Would it? Or would that give parties knowledge as to what they're bidding against? The issue is there hasn't been a determination yet made about where the lenders are willing to, in that range, call it. The lenders want some degree of flexibility to be a participant in the auction at that time. If at that time the lenders are in fact participating and driving bids up, I think the bid procedures are already structured in a way where they would no longer be consultation parties. I understand that the procedures say once the lenders credit bid, until they take themselves out of the credit bid, they're not consultation parties. But the lenders have their rights as secured creditors. You don't want me to pay attention to the lender support agreement yet, but it's in front of me and it's underlining exactly how this auction is playing out is what it sounds like. But we shouldn't look at it and we shouldn't worry about it. So the lenders have set a floor. So essentially you're a stalking horse bidder. You've set a floor. It's going to have to be over. You may not think of it that way, but why isn't it an alternative for that? Just another way of getting to that. Am I missing something? Because it's setting a floor. And it's not the debtor setting a floor, actually. It's the lender setting a floor. So it's a non-debtor party setting a floor, which you may have the right as secured lenders to accept whatever you want to accept or not, but now we're talking bid procedures. Now we're talking about other parties coming in and wanting a level playing field, and I want to make sure there is a level playing field. And that's what I'm struggling with a little, so I want to hear this, because normally I would not let a lender be a consultation party if they're credit bidding or they're the stalking horse bidder. And I would make them make that decision certainly before the auction begins. So, again, everybody knows. So are you a buyer or a seller? And you're telling me you're maybe both, and you don't know. But what I'm trying to figure out is how does that set a level playing field so that people want to come into the process so they understand whether it's worth their time to come into the process. So I understand your point, Your Honor, and I think we should talk as the steering committee offline, but I understand the desire to have the lenders either be in or out by the time the auction starts. At a minimum. At a minimum. They have to be in or out before the auction starts, because then you're going to be privy, the lenders would be privy to 
how the debtors are analyzing everything, how they're looking at different, how they're negotiating with the other uh, bidders, uh, et cetera. And I don't think you can be both. And I actually, though I haven't had this issue before, I kind of think you're effectively that now by setting a minimum bid. Um, but I could maybe be convinced you're not. Let me ask this question too. In terms of the minimum purchase price for a subset for a subset of the debtor's assets, how is that going to be determined and when? Again, in terms of other parties coming in and knowing what they're bidding for and knowing what a minimum price is that they have to come over. If I understand the question, it's for non-whole co-bids, mm -hmm. how potential purchasers will know if there's a minimum price that they need to beat, um, and, and I guess how else they'll participate in the process. So as I'm sure your honor sees, we don't have a minimum price established for any less than whole co-bids. And I think we wanted to maintain flexibility as the debtors to be able to see what assets folks have interest in and who we can piece together for as near a whole co-bid as we could. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we were reluctant to establish a minimum bid for that given the you know sheer number of potential combinations of assets that you, know, you could break the debtor's assets down into. You know, if we set it at $5 million, maybe that would make sense for a piece of equipment, but it almost certainly wouldn't make sense for any particular parcel of land. Um, so I think we were reluctant to set a floor. And I think we wanted to see, you know, as we got more publicity for the process upon the filing of these Chapter 11 cases and continued to engage and in some instances re-engage with parties who are involved in the pre-petition process, see where interest lied. And if we thought that there was a potentially value maximizing combination of non-whole COVIDs available. So I think that was why we were reluctant to put any particular framework around that process because we just weren't sure if we put it out there, what might come back. Well, that makes sense to me. Um, and maybe it's why this sentence in paragraph six of the, I guess I'm in the order, um, sort of stu stood out. It's like, yes, I wouldn't expect you necessarily to set a minimum purchase price. I would expect that you'd let people bid on what they want to bid and you put the combinations together and you see if the pieces um, see, more sorry, you mean value maximized than the whole. I mean, you're going to take a look at it. But this suggested to me that at some point, and I guess when, <laughs> there's going to be a minimum purchase price for a subset. And if there's going to be one established and I'm a bidder, I'd like to know that. If it's going to be sort of done in a stealth fashion or halfway through the auction, I guess I want to know that too. If what you're doing is what I would consider to be what usually comes in front of me is, yeah, we're not setting a price. We'll just see what happens and we'll put the pieces together and the professionals will do their thing, then, then that's okay. 
but I didn't know what that means. And there may also be something in the bid procedures that addresses that as well. So I just really want to understand so that. In the procedures, um, I think it's on page 11 of the procedures, the um, pre-petition secured parties, I believe it's the agents specifically, uh, have you know sort of upgraded their consultation right into a consent right essentially over whole co-bids that come in under the minimum bid to deem those qualified. There is no such consent right. It's a consultation right again for um, subsets of bids. Well, it's, it's I guess that cons consent right is not applicable to subsets of bids. So I think um, if I understand the question that you're asking, and you can correct me if I'm not, I think you're asking, um, I think you're saying that the constructs we have in place for subsets of bids is similar to what you're used to seeing, which is you know, we don't have a floor price established. We're going to run our marketing process. We're going to see what comes in. And it's particularly in juxtaposition to the minimum bid for the whole co. Um, that, that partial asset bidders might wonder, you know, what, is there a minimum price here? Or are there any other hurdles I need to jump over before to participate in the process? Paragraph six suggests there is. We just don't know what it is. That it suggests there is a minimum price, but it doesn't for subsets, but it doesn't tell us what it is. So to me, either there is one or there isn't one. And if there's going to be one, that people have to have to better, so they need to know that. Okay, so I don't think we intend there to be a minimum threshold for any subset of assets. I see that the sentence reads, provided however, each bid for a portion of the debtor's assets may be deemed a qualified bid regardless <coughs> of the minimum threshold, suggesting that maybe there is one for a subset of assets would your honor be happy if we change that proviso to just say that there is no minimum threshold for a subset of assets? I don't know if there is or there isn't. All I'm suggesting is that this suggests there is, but it's unknown. So, <laughs> or, so it's, it's, it or, it's not, <laughs> or it's not disclosed. <laughs> so I, I'm not suggest. I don't know if there is or there isn't one. All, this suggests there is one. If there isn't one, and there isn't going to be one set, then maybe you ought to change your sentence. Okay. If there is one, then that's a different issue. Okay. My understanding is that there's not intended to be a minimum because, you know, we could cobble together any combination of assets and maybe we'll sell you a tractor for $5,000 in addition to, you know, a chunk of land for $100 million. Um, but anybody can let me know here or later if they think that's incorrect and we'll take that drafting suggestion back. I want to understand the procedures for contracts. Um, and in particular, I guess this starts at um, particular paragraph 21. And the timeline is really tight on contracts. Like I think less than 24 <coughs> hours people are supposed to respond. So that's an issue too. But here, I'm not sure what happens at the sale hearing. 
tells me cure objections won't be heard. Okay, that's fine. You're but in paragraph 21. I'm in paragraph I'm 22, actually. Okay. Well, maybe I should just let you explain to me the process, but I, it seems to me like there's some conditional assumption and assignment going on here to be revisited later, and I'm not clear on this. So I believe that your read is correct. I think we would propose that in the event, in light of the timeline that is tight, as your honor points out, in the event that there's a dispute as to the appropriate cure amount, we're asking that without letting that dispute, which we think would be sort of ancillary to the general process to delay the closing of a sale, with the dispute in this instance just being about the appropriate amount of money to pay the counterparty, we could continue performance under the contract according to its terms until we either consensually or in front of your honor determine what the appropriate cure amount is and pay it at that time to the extent that there's anything additional. Okay, well, if that were the issue, and you were only talking cure, and you were saying I'm going to reserve the amount in dispute and then pay it or not pay it, depending on the ruling, then that would be okay. But as I'm reading this, it says the debtor shall proceed with the assumption and assignment of a particular contract or lease at the sale hearing. So that sounds like that's an assumption and assignment. And that shall not prevent or delay. The, the cure amount shall not prevent or delay the assumption and assignment. And then, half a paragraph later, it says, the debtors reserve the right to reject and not assume and assign any contract, depending on the ultimate resolution of the cure amount. So what's happening in that interim period? Has the contract been assumed or has it not been assumed? And if it hasn't been assumed, who's performing or not having to perform or not having to perform? So I think that the idea that we have in this paragraph is that we would assume the contract and pay, I imagine any dispute over cure would be they saying that we should pay more to cure. And so we'll pay up to the amount that we don't dispute and each party would continue performance under the contract according to its terms until the dispute is resolved or, well, either consensually or by your honor. And then at the point that the debtors are faced with, you know, a dollar figure that says this is what you need to pay to continue in performance of this contract with the counterparty, I think we're just asking to reserve the right to at that point say, you know, our good faith view was that it was a lower number. Now that your honor has given us a higher number, we think that this contract is actually burdensome to the estate and reject it at that point. So you're going to assume it and then reject it? I believe that's correct. 
can we do that? That's how I'm reading this, and that's why I'm asking the questions. Um, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm <laughs> since, since, since you're asking me to say this is the process, I want to make sure I understand it. to be more comfortable if we rework this paragraph to not use the legal term of assumption and instead designate if there are disputes contracts for assumption for potential assumption at a later time with the construct that we were just talking about where we pay up to the amount that the debtors agree to continue performance until such time as we to resolve the dispute and instead of assuming, we've sort of provisionally continued performance and made the undisputed portion of the cure amount payments um, until such time as the dispute is resolved. And then at which point we'll either fully assume or reject the contract, which I think I would argue makes the uh, counterparty no worse off because they will have gotten at least a partial cure payment, which they're unlikely to get in this case if we were to uh, have to, in the uncertainty, reject their contract because they said that we owe them 10 times what we thought we owed them. Maybe we would then just reject the contracts in light of the dispute where here they would get a cure amount, some continued performance according to the terms of the contract. And then if at such time that we uh, a, a dispute is not resolved in our favor, we choose not to pay whatever amount we were uh, incorrect about I think and reject can, at that I point. think you can leave the assumption or rejection open <coughs> pending a determination of the appropriate amount of the cure amount, but I don't know that I can force a party to perform for the, a non-debtor party, which is what it sounds like is what people want to happen. Um, maybe I can, but it hasn't been briefed and I don't know. So I think you can leave, if, if there's a, and I think this is what typically happens, is that if there's a contract dispute, a cure dispute or otherwise, then that contract doesn't get assumed and assigned. And we wait until the resolution and then the debtor and the successful bidder can make a determination as to whether or not the cure amount um, makes it a profitable contract or not. But I don't think in the middle of bid procedures, I should be determining the rights of parties to counter contracts um, and changing the rules, the normal rules of assumption and assignment or rejection. So is your concern addressed if we strike the sentence beginning, the debtors shall proceed with the assumption and assignment of a particular contract or lease at the sale hearing and dependency of the dispute relating to cure amounts shall not prevent or delay the assumption and assignment of a contract or lease.
speaking. I haven't thought about how it needs to be rewritten, but it might be, as long as we're not changing the code's requirements on assumption and rejection, then that's fine. Okay. Again, I'm not sure in bid procedures we need to be defining contract rights. I think what you should be doing is setting a date where people have to object, but beyond that, I don't think I should be affecting people's substantive rights. I, I think I understand, Your Honor. We don't need to, there's a lot of lawyers in the courtroom. We don't need to live draft this paragraph. We'll submit a proposed order to Chambers okay. after this meeting. Okay. Okay. It'll be the fourth, I think, bidding procedures order to hit your docket in the last 24 hours. But. Okay. Let's look at the timeline. I am in the procedures. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so I understand the bidders are happy working through Thanksgiving and they will do that. Um, okay, the auction date, and I'm looking at the chart, the auction date mm -hmm. says it's December 4th which I take it is now definitive because I think of the procedures it said on or before. But I, do we have a definitive date now? Correct. Okay. And then here's where it gets really tight for people, for the people not in the room, okay? So December 5, or within six hours <laughs> following the conclusion of the auction, well, as soon as reasonably practical, practicable thereafter, thereafter, the deadline, that's the deadline for the debtors to serve via overnight delivery adequate assurance information. So if the auction's done on the 4th, then it's going out on the 4th by overnight. Um, if it's not done on the 4th to get into FedEx, then it's going out on the 5th. That's correct. Okay. And people are supposed to object by December 6th at 4th. That's correct. Earlier, Your Honor, I would point out on, um, I think, three days, assuming you enter the order, the bidding procedures order today, which we'll see, um, I, we will uh, file and send an initial assumption and assignment notice. Um, the company doesn't have an extremely amount of executory contracts. Um, we are hopeful that we have gotten all of the information that is really relevant to um, contract counterparties to them by the end of this week, or maybe it's beginning of next. Um, so while I appreciate that it's a really tight turnaround after the auction, outside of a concern with the winner of the auction, um, I think that they should have all of the information that they need in their hands by this time next week. Okay, this time next week is the day before Thanksgiving. They've already said they would love to work through Thanksgiving. No, the, oh, the you're, you're bidders right. you're have right. said not that. The, <laughs> the counter-contract parties haven't said that. You're right. Um, I think it's three business days after entry of the bidding procedures order. I'll 
be hopeful that that's tomorrow. I think that means they should get this information on Monday. Okay, well, I may permit that to happen, but if there's any issues with notice and people have problems, I'll hear them. And if they don't have the information they need, they don't have it. We understand. Okay, in the, further on in the bid procedures, um, on page six and seven, it talks about the executed agreement and parties have to mark up and form APA. The bid procedure should provide that parties can make a bid in any form they wanna make a bid. And we have professionals who get to figure out if they get a bid that isn't in the form of an APA or a different APA, that's what we pay them to do. They get to figure out apples and oranges. Somebody wants to make their own bid, be a plan sponsor, come in and buy equity, whatever they wanna do, they can do it. I'm not limiting bids to the form of an APA, nor am I approving the form of the APA today. I think we can live with that, Your Honor. to be wholesome. We've been talking about the APA. I assume you also don't want us to require um, Clause A there, an offer letter signed by an offer in um, C1. I think that as opposed to the APA is just a well, you can give ask, us assurance you can give an that we're offer looking letter, for yes. Okay. I mean, somebody can make an offer letter, but again, I don't think it's restricted to the APA form. Okay. And actually, one of my early cases, I had somebody come in with a better offer on very different terms, and I actually had a contested hearing as to whether I could accept it or not. So, and the okay. answer I decided was yes. So I don't have that dispute anymore. And if somebody wants to offer a bid that's not all cash, I don't know why the debtors wouldn't consider it. It may not be better than an all cash bid. It may not be better than a credit bid. But I don't understand why the debtors versus the pre-petition lenders wouldn't consider consideration in whatever form it happens to come. Stock in some other company, who knows? Again, the lender support agreement is not something that should um, control bid procedures.
Okay, when you're talking about credit bidding and when does do the pre-petition lenders have to come in, I note that there's no round skipping in the procedures. So it would strike me that if the lenders didn't credit bid in the first round, they don't get to come in. Or is that not supposed to apply to them? So I have a question on that. But y'all can talk about that. So I know the way we intended it to work was to generally carve the lenders out of the uh, qualified bid requirements. Again, it just strikes me to set a level playing field so that so that others know what they're bidding against. We should set a level playing field. And um, so, if in round one we have two bids at call it two seventy five, you want the prepetition lenders to also have to raise their hand, say, you know, we credit bid two seventy five of our prepetition claims. Round two begins. Somebody bids two eighty five. They need to maybe choose they to should go have up. to. You have a no round skipping in your procedures. It's usually done for a reason, and why should a bidder be exempt from it? Point of discussion. Um, those are my, I think those are my big concerns, is how the pre-petition lenders how they should participate and the terms under which they should participate. Um, did anyone else wish, does anyone wish to be heard before we take a break, which we're gonna do so parties can talk? Okay, the timeline concerns me, but I'm relying on Mr. Sandall and the representations of counsel that the bidders um, can bid in this period of time um, and uh, uh, as it has been extended at, as I understand it, the request of certain bidders. And I would hope, of course, that if it turns out that bidders come back to you and say they need even more time, that that will be addressed in some fashion. Okay, let's take a break. Um, and uh, I'm amenable, of course, to hearing a discussion on any of the points I've raised and why I'm wrong. That's fine. But I would like to have some responses um, because um, I'm not actually sure if I've had a case exactly on this, in this posture where I've got a minimum bid set by pre-petition lenders who aren't an official stocking horse bidder, but they're right there. So thank you. Um, thank you. How much time would you like? I'm here in 15 minutes. Okay, we'll start with 15 minutes. And then when you tell me you need more, then we'll give you some more time. So we'll start with 15. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, we're in recess.
hold on. There's some other kind of place in that made sense. Did you ever take that? No. Yeah, it's strictly private there now, like freight and private. Yeah. Yeah. And you can imagine it. Good afternoon, Your Honor. Dave Gremling, Kirkland and Ellis, on behalf of the debtors. Um, we appreciate that the uh, cash collateral issues and the bid procedure issues that you had concerns with are interrelated, so we can take them in whatever order you prefer. Whatever you like, however you want to address it. Okay, um, we'll start with the bidding procedures. Um, and I have two updates. Um, well, one is a request. We had talked about the form APA language, um, and I had said that we'd remove the concept, but I spoke with Mr. Sandall and some others on our side, and we would prefer to change the language more uh, modestly and make it not a requirement, but rather just say that parties may, and we'll include a proviso that says that they don't have to. Um, and Your Honor, we think that's a helpful suggestion, so thank you for making it. We have some, you know, uh, That's fine. Okay. As long as it's not a requirement. And then second, the, um, the bigger item that I think maybe will be helpful in getting your honor comfortable with the procedures more generally is that we've connected with the uh, council to the pre-position secured parties, and they are comfortable, and we'll bake it into the procedures and submit a revised order um, with a concept where the, um, the steer co has to sort of choose a hat, whether they're going to be a buyer or a seller ahead of the auction. I think it's appropriate for them to um, either show up to the auction to credit bid or commit to not credit bid uh, before the auction begins. And we'll, we'll put that in the procedures and submit a revised form order to chambers, but that's the concept. Um, does that resolve okay. your concerns with the order generally? That's fine. And then 
maybe as a matter of housekeeping and apologies for getting sort of maybe thematically confused, but I, I agreed to tackle the uh, two other orders that we've been seeking uh, from your honor that we filed, um, I believe, a certificate of non-objection and a certificate of counsel with regard to. That is our uh, interim compensation procedures. I think that one is CNO'd. I don't think we heard from anyone. Um, and then our creditor matrix, which we submitted a COC. Nobody objected, but we noticed after filing the original that we had not removed the uh, emailed notice concept that you wanted on an interim basis. We did remove that and refiled it. Okay, um, I had a question on that. I couldn't tell from the COC. Had I entered a final on that or not yet? We believe, I believe you'd only entered it on an interim basis okay. um, and you had asked us to remove email notice from that interim order, which we did. And when we uh, filed our original COC, we inadvertently re-included the email concept, took it back out, and refiled it. Okay, so there is not a final order entered. There is not. At all, so this would be the final. Okay, then that one's fine. Okay. And? Interim compensation procedures. I didn't look at it, but I can't imagine I have any problems with it as long as it conforms to how we do it here. I assume it does. I'll enter it. Okay, if I have any you. questions, I'll let you know. Okay, appreciate it. Thank you, Your Honor. Okay. And I will hand the uh, podium back to Ms. Fogelberg on cash, cash collateral. Good afternoon, uh, Whitney Fogelberg on behalf of the debtors. Going back to the paragraph that you had flagged in the credit bid paragraph, it is, I'll wait till you have your, <laughs> there you go. Um, paragraph 20C on page 50 of the red line? Yes. <clears throat> we spoke with counsel to the pre-petition secured parties and they have agreed to remove Romanet 3 from the end of that sentence. So the options would be to either pay cash or exclude those assets from their credit bid. So we would obviously now with the change to the credit bid, we'll, we'll you know, We'll know when they're credit bidding in advance of the auction if for some reason the committee comes back after um, the auction has, has passed and the lenders have credit bid. Um, we will, you know, tr sell those assets, whichever are subject, you know, we're subject to the challenge or, you know, in consultation with the committee and the lenders, resolve some sort of mechanism for, to give the unsecured creditors value for those um, um, assets that would be excluded from the credit bid once the challenge period has passed. And I think counsel to the committee is also available to speak on this point as well. They were a part of the discussion with us. Good afternoon, Your Honor. Andrew Bellman from Lone Stein on behalf of the committee. Um, to, to put a slightly more practical point on the mechanism that Ms. Vogelberg just described, um, the discussion that we had in the hall when we, we came to the conclusion with everybody that removing Romanet 3 would, would help solve this problem um, was that if we, if we get to the end of the challenge period and there's some unencumbered asset that we've found and we've asserted a challenge and either settled with the lenders or you know, brought it before Your Honor and Your Honor has given us standing and we're proceeding. Um, one of two things is gonna happen when we get to the end of that challenge. We're gonna have an asset that's unencumbered 
we're either going to say, okay, you know, in consultation with the debtors or really the debtors in consultation with us because it's their asset, they're going to say, well, we're going to have Mr. Sandall run this back through the process and, you know, if this is a big valuable asset, put it out to market. Or the parties are going to sit down with the lenders and say, what's your price? Um, Mr. Siegel has already agreed that if it is a tractor, he'd like the tractor delivered to his house. We'll gladly drop that off for him. Um, but it's, it's going to depend on, you know, the practical reality of what the outcome of that challenge is. You know, if we find 1,500 acres of land that are unencumbered, that's probably a Mr. Sandall thing. If we find, you know, some, some portable assets or some small amount of land or some rights or whatever, um, you know, that's probably a discussion with the lenders that comes to a practical conclusion where they write a check to the estate. Um, and I think it really is that simple. Um, and so we're, we're actually pretty comfortable with the approach that Ms. Vogelberg laid out. Okay, thank you. Anyone else? Okay, well, I'm comfortable with that explanation um, and the outcome and the support of the committee on that. So I will um, uh, sign a form of order that eliminates the next vote. Thank you, Your Honor. Yes, we'll submit two revised orders, one for cash collateral, one for the bidding procedures um, once we've circled them through with everyone. And um, I think that was it for the rest of the agenda. Okay, thank you. Any, anything else? Looks like maybe. Your Honor, Alex Lees of Millbank for the, um, for the ad hoc group. We have a ceiling motion on. Uh, I think that was technically on the agenda. I don't know if your honor wants to take that up. I don't think it's objected to. Just the context there is we filed a statement reserving rights, which I walked you through before. Um, we redacted some information. It was really to honor confidentiality requests of other parties. It wasn't our own issue. So uh, I'm happy to address it, but it might be up to other parties if there are issues. But I just want to make sure that that was taken care of because that motion is technically on the agenda. Okay, um, I noticed that, and I think it raises the question about whether the um, initial filing should be on in a redacted form when nobody has asked for permission to redact anything. So um, I think we should carry the ceiling motion. I understand why uh, the ad hoc group uh, uh, filed the motion to um, recognize that another document was filed under seal but, or re in a redacted form, but nobody asked for permission to redact in the first instance, so I think it raises that issue. That's fine with the debtors. We can carry their motion and try and work this out um, amongst everybody and, and then also circle back on the fact that we filed the the LSA with the redactions in the first instance. Right. And I think we do have a rule on that, even though it's more goes more towards sealing. If you file a document under seal, I think you have to file a motion within so many days. Um, I don't know that I've ever again had the situation where someone just filed a redacted document and it's not the debtor's redaction, I assume. Um, and uh, but somebody's put something on the public record. So let's, um, let's address that. I won't make any decisions on it because I don't have really that contested matter in front of me, but I'll carry your 
the feeling that it's going to be heard along with the, that there needs to be something with respect to redacting this. Understood, Your Honor. Thank you. Anything else? Okay, well, thank you very much then. We're adjourned. Thanks, Judge. Good job, team. Elsmont.